ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you will, uh, open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10. We're going to look at the first five verses of Zechariah chapter 10 this evening. Uh, And as we come, remember we have introduced a little bit of a pivot to the book of Zechariah. The first number of chapters was all about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Zechariah preaches a lengthy sermon there uh, in chapters 7 and 8. And then beginning in chapter 9, carrying on through the rest of the book, our focus turns not to the coming kingdom of God, but the coming King of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And so as we come to Zechariah chapter 10 verses 1 through 5, we encounter the Lord Jesus as he is presented to us as the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. And in his historical context, of course, is talking about how Christ will shepherd the people of Judah. But in a fuller sense, the prophet is telling us about one who will come, the Lord Jesus, who will be the shepherd of all of his people. And and we know from the psalmist David that this idea of shepherd can be very personal to us from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And so this prophecy is fulfilled as we see Christ being the shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd of his people, the shepherd of you and me as we've come to faith in him. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice in these first three ver- or first five verses, even before we read, is that two things are being uh, shown to us. And if you'll just let your eyes fall at the first five verses, in verses one through three, we're going to be given this great lesson of contrast. The great shepherd of the sheep is going to be held out in contrast to the idols of God's people in which they have adapted or adopted yet again. And then in verses four and five, we're going to see how the great shepherd cares for his people. And so it's going to be a lesson of the great shepherd in contrast as he's contrasted with idols and then the great shepherd as he cares for his flock. And so I want to read verses 1 through 5 and then we're going to look at it for a few moments together. And here's what the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. Ask rain... From the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain. To everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. 
Well, as many of you know, in my freshman year of college, I worked for the Future Farmers of America Association. And uh, as one of their state officers, I traveled around, mostly the upstate, but some here in the PD and other parts of the state. And we would do these uh, leadership training seminars for these high school kids. Uh, and oftentimes, as we went into these new schools, we would do something of an icebreaker game so that they could get to know us and we could get to know them. And if different chapters or different schools were present, that they could get to know each other before we embarked on this journey of this day-long seminar together. And, and one of the games that I liked to play, or especially as I was leading these seminars, was the game Two Truths and a Lie. Now, I don't know if I ought to say that I encouraged uh, these teenagers to lie during a game, but, but nonetheless, I think you all know what the, what the game is. If you don't, it's very simple. You would tell three statements about yourself, and two of them would be true, and one of them would be a lie, and the rest of the group would have to uh, determine or guess which one the lie was. And there was always supposed to be some sort of story behind the lie, uh, so that you would end up telling some sort of, sort of funny story about yourself to just get to know one another better. Well, in a lot of ways, I think what happens here when, when the prophet Zechariah begins to give us some contrasting looks at, at these idols in comparison to the Lord God Almighty, you'll notice very quickly in the first verse, it's Lord in all capital letters, and so it's Yahweh is the Hebrew translation, and it's that covenant name of God. As he compares the idols of the people of Judah to Yahweh, their God, the Lord, it seems to be like he's saying, which one is the real one? Or which one is true? One preacher said it's something like a police lineup. And you know how the police line up, you stand behind the glass, the victim stands behind the glass, and you have these men standing in front of you, and you're supposed to identify the one who has assaulted you, and so they do the whole, you know, face forward, face to the left, I had to think about that for a second, face to the right, uh, and which one is the perpetrator, if you will? Well, Zachariah's holding out these idols in, in comparison and contrast to the Lord. And really his, his whole goal is for the people of Judah through this message of the prophet Zacharias to say, why would I ever want the lie? Why would I ever want to follow an idol? If I look at the splendor of the Lord, if I look at his providential care for me, why would I ever chase about empty idolatry? when I can have the fullness of joy which belongs only to the people of Yahweh. And so before us here, in the first three verses, Zechariah is going to begin to give this contrast. And if you look right at verse 1, look how he begins. Well, he begins saying, Ask rain from the Lord, in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and He will give them showers of rain. So right off the bat, the prophet Zechariah is tagging along to the very end of chapter 9. The end of chapter 9 is all about this coming Zion, this coming kingdom, the coming glories of the heaven, how the Lord will 
place before us all the best of foods and the best of wines and we will eat and we will feast and we will be provided for for the rest of our days and eternity with him. It's almost as if now as he transitions to chapter 10 that Zechariah is saying, well, can the goodness of God be seen here on this side of heaven? We know about the goodness and the providence of God. We know how He will provide for His people and allow them to eat until they are filled and commune with them and be close to them and hear them. But can we experience that on this side of glory? And the prophet Zechariah is saying, yes. Yes, you can. And you can by the very means of prayer. You can by the very means of prayer. Look how he says it again. Ask. That's the ESV translation. If you're using another translation, it might be beseech or plea. Plea for rain from the Lord. And what does it say? The creator of the storm clouds will give you rain. It's much like what the Lord Jesus says when He teaches us to pray to our Heavenly Father, give us this day our daily bread. The, the prophet Zechariah is helping us to understand that the very, the very simple and often, often overlooked routine, ordinary gifts that we receive on this side of heaven is actually a providential care from the Lord. You know, I, I love when... Uh, Brother Jim asks for rain when the farmers need rain. And, and oftentimes it seems as if a couple of weeks after he asks that request in prayer meeting, I, I tell him, you need to stop praying for rain because I think we're going to drown. Because what the, what the text is telling us here is that the one who has created the storm clouds is a God who hears the prayers of his people and not only hears them, but then answers them. When the Lord Jesus tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, He's telling us that our Heavenly Father, who knows that we need daily provisions, will indeed supply those very ordinary resources for us to live. Often am reminded, and I often actually use it, uh, during our prayer meeting services, what the psalmist David says. He says, let me lie peacefully at night for your hand is preserving me, but then let me rise up in thanksgiving in the morning for your hand has sustained me. How often are we a people who give thanksgivings for the very ordinary, routine gifts that the Lord has given? And even more so, how often are we a people who ask Plea, beseech for the Lord to give us those things in which we need for our daily provision. And, and what Zechariah is encouraging the people of Judah here to do is to indeed ask for the Lord hears. We have not because we've asked not, the Scriptures say. And so he's telling us these very minute things that, like rain that, that, that showers upon the vegetation so that everyone might eat from the, the produce of the field. This God is the God who created the storm clouds, and this is the God who sends the rain. Ask for it. But then, in contrast, you notice in verse 2, he says, For the household gods utter nonsense, 
and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and they give empty consolation. And so right off the bat, he's telling you the God, Yahweh, the Lord, he is a God who hears and answers. But these household gods, what the Hebrew word there is teraphim. Maybe your translation even says that. The teraphim, the household gods, they are little statuettes of pagan ideologies and they utter nonsense. They see lies. They tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. Now we, we have to know something about these household gods, these teraphim as the Hebrew translates it. Because what we know about these teraphim is actually these are little statues made uh, of ancestors. And, and they're very prevalent in the empire, or were very prevalent in the empire of Babylon. And, and what we know about these little statuettes of these ancestors is the Babylonian people thought that if they were to be fertile, they needed these ancestors to be present. And if they were to be successful in battle, they needed these little statuettes present. If they were to be blessed in their homes, they needed these little statuettes present. And the Lord spoke in judgment against the people of God all the way back in Isaiah about these little teraphim, these little household gods that they had adopted. And you might originally think, well, our... Are they speaking of those teraphim that were in the households before the exile? No. See, as the people of God have returned to the city of Jerusalem, what has been adopted by the empire of Medo-Persia is these little Babylonian ancestor statuettes, these little idols. And because the people of God have seen the Medo-Persians with these little idols, they said, you know what, we had those and they were a pretty good idea then. We need to adopt them again into our homes because maybe we'll be successful. Maybe we'll be blessed. We need fertility. We need, we need Judah to grow with its inhabitants. We need success. We need the, the walls of the city and the temple to be erected even faster than it already is. We need blessing. Our enemy, right, is at, at, at our door, thresholds, and, and we're working with a plow in one hand and a sword in the other. We're always watching our back. We need victory. We need blessing. We need success. And so let's adopt again these Medo-Persian, Babylonian hybrid idols. And you think, well, Matt, it's just a little idol. It's just this little statuette of an ancestor, but, but understand what Zechariah is saying here. It's saying that the idolatry, the practices of the world surrounding the people of God and the land of God, the world has snuck in or snuck back in. What's happened here is that like a slow leak trickling into their homes, into their hearts, into their lives is now causing great perversion, great idolatry throughout the whole region of Judah. In all likelihood, it's not that they've rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they thought this God, Yahweh, just can't be enough. And so we need to add to, they, these, these idols need to fit into our, our worship. 
the normal practices of the culture. We can, we can hold both of them together. And, and so, you know, as so long as I have God, I can also have these things. And isn't that how the devil tries to tempt us to adopt the worldly culture and the worldly ideology that surrounds us? Oh, you can use the language of the world. You can use the language of their sinful theories and ideologies. You can use the thoughts of these perverted and sin-filled philosophers. You can, you can have both, can't you? You can, be a, you can be a Christian, but you don't want to be too Christian because the world might shun you. And so adopt these little idols, if you will. And let's merge our religion together. But you see that that all leads in nonsense. I love how the ESV translates it there. It's utter nonsense. What these little household gods offer to the people of Judah. And I understand, I, I understand completely, or at least I hope so, that you know if I was to come over to your house for a pastoral visit, I'm not going to see a little idol erected there on your nightstand or on your mantle of your fireplace. You know, you, you walk into the Chinese or Japanese restaurants here in town and you see the little, oh, there's nothing little about them, is there? <laughs> you see the Buddha sitting there with all the coins. I don't think anybody has anything like that in your homes. And you say, well, Matt, what does this mean for me? The people of Judah, they had these physical idols that, that sat around their households and they adopted cultural ideologies and, and cultural sinfulness and wickedness and they merged it together with, with Christianity. What does this mean for me? And I think it causes us to really examine our hearts to see if there's any heart teraphim that exists within us. It might not be pagan statuettes, I understand that, but understand how the Apostle Paul talks about idolatry. He says your greed is idolatry. Greed, that's not a statue. That's a heart issue. It's an appetite for just more stuff. And Paul says that is idolatry. Or if you go to 1 John at the very end of his letter, you know his burden for the people there and all these exhortations of holiness, he closes his book saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's anxious to see them free from idols. And, and how does he define idolatry? He actually does it for us in 1 John 2, 15-17. If you want to turn there, that's fine, but you can just listen. Here's how he defines idolatry. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's the contrast, you see. John uses the very contrast that Zechariah is using here. The, the idols of the world, what seems pleasing to the flesh or to the eyes or to life itself that the world has to offer. What the Father has not given, what the world has to offer, 
that's all fading away, but those who abide in the will of God live forever. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that's idolatry, the Apostle John says. And so we need to do a a heart check, if you will. We need to examine our hearts and even pray that the Holy Spirit would, would search our hearts and try us to reveal to us the teraphim, the little household gods that find their residence within the depths of our hearts. Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it affirmation? Is it approval or praise of man? Is it work? Whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, what the message here is, is we cannot compromise abiding in the Lord and Him alone. We cannot compromise the faith in which has been handed down to us from all the saints who have gone before us. What the Scriptures declare to us and say, I can have both. The Christian faith can be an and with worldly standards. No, the idols of the heart, they're utter nonsense. They preach lies, they tell false dreams, and they give empty consolation. That's what Zechariah is trying to drive home here. God is a God who lives and hears and works. He is a God who makes covenant with man and His promises never fail. But those household gods, they are the ones who tell false dreams and give empty consolation. And you know the warning, don't you? That the psalmist declares in Psalm 115 verse 8, He says, those who make idols become like them. They become empty. They become utter nonsense. And that's exactly what the end of verse 2 brings about here. He says, those who worship these household gods, they are a people who wander like sheep, you see. For they are afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. They do not have a shepherd. These people wander like sheep. They're afflicted. And what Zechariah is trying to tell you is that your hearts, your heart idols, your your wicked hearts apart from Christ, they cannot save you. They won't deliver you. They cannot help you or comfort you. Idols are lifeless, powerless, worthless, empty, blind, and dead. But praise God that He sees the idolatry of Judah. And where is his anger turned? In the covenant of grace, his anger is turned to those false shepherds and those idols. Because here it is that our God is bound and determined that his people will not wander like lost sheep. But they will be a people who are guided by the streams of still water and in the paths of righteousness and by the grass that is green by those waters. Our God is bound and determined for a people. Even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they will fear no evil. For the Lord God Almighty, the great shepherd of the sheep, is with them. And even in enemy territory, they sit and they feast with their shepherd. They commune with Him. They find safety in Him, the psalmist David says in Psalm 23. And so here it is that in verse 3, 4 and 5. 
we have this idea of this coming shepherd of the sheep, King Jesus. Now, what's being established here, and we don't have the time to to focus on it, but there's a promise here that there will be these under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. Don't you see it there in verse 4? It says, From him, every ruler, all of them together, they shall be like mighty men in battle. He's talking about these under-shepherds, these good shepherds who will come, yes, in the history of Israel, in the history of the people of God, but ultimately, he's talking about pastors and elders, church leaders, and praise God, we have many here that are, that are very much focused on ensuring that the people don't wander like lost sheep, but are led well. But don't focus on the under-shepherds, because they're men. Focus on the chief shepherd. The one who will come. And in verses 4 and 5, he tells us the care of these shepherds, really, or this chief shepherd, in a couple of illustrations. And very quickly, I want to run through them. Verse 4, it says, From him shall come the cornerstone. Here's the, the first little illustration of this coming chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. We know from verses like Psalm 118, 22, it says, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus repeats that or recites that verse in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, referring to Himself. You're going to reject Me, religious establishment. You're going to put Me to death, but on the third day I'm going to rise again and I'm going to be the cornerstone of the church. Upon Me the church will be built. This is the prophecy of the coming cornerstone. The chief shepherd will come and and all of his people will find a firm foundation in him. Christ is the sure foundation we often sing. But the second image, the second illustration there is this tent peg. Now this one's interesting. The Lord Jesus Christ, the coming King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's going to come and he is going to be a tent peg. Isn't that... I don't know about you, I felt that a little funny when I first read it. But you know, it's the same language that's used in Isaiah 22 when it's describing Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, one of Israel's greatest leaders. And this is what the Lord says to Eliakim. It says, I will fasten you like a peg. And in a secure place, I will make you become a throne of honor in your father's house. And they, talking about the people of God, will hang on you and your whole honor of your father's house and the offspring and every small vessel, the cups to all the flagons, they will hang upon you. Do you see what the message is saying then? It's the same message in which the author of Hebrews declares that Christ is the anchor for the soul. He's the peg in which we can place all of our weight upon. You know, it's the chief shepherd in Matthew chapter 11 that says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Put your yoke upon me and learn from me and take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, is an anchor for your soul. He's the securing hook that will hold fast in our deepest needs and we can rest upon Him with all of our weight. With all of our weight. With all of our despair, with all of our burdens, we can cast them upon Christ.
Christ and the chief shepherd will hold us securely. And then that third image is one that we've seen before, but it's him as a battle bow. It's him as a battle bow. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, this coming king, the chief shepherd, he is going to be a shepherd, as we'll see later on in chapter 11, who will lay down his life for the sake of his sheep. And yet, by laying down his life, he raises up again victorious. And so Jesus is declaring here the victory that is for us for all eternity. That the chief shepherd gives us a victory that is eternal. And, 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 and just in closing, doesn't that make you a little more ready to fight the good fight? Doesn't that make the pilgrim journey a little less burdensome as we travel on to glory? Because when we know that the one who is in you is greater than he that is in the world, we can press forward. When we know that the same Father who raised Jesus from the dead will equip you with everything good that you may do his work which is pleasing in his sight, you work just a little bit harder when we know that the chief shepherd is the one leading us, is the one that we can cast all of our affection in, or to, that we can put all our trust in, we know that this journey might be long. And this journey might bring seasons of weariness, but the victory will be ours, says the Lord of hosts. I love what Martin Luther says because he reminds us that that all of our striving would be fruitless if it wasn't for Jesus. He says, if it was in our own strength that we confided, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabaoth His name. From age to age, the same. And He must win the battle. You see, the way in which the Lord cares for His flock is that He sends them Jesus. And Jesus, in comparison, in contrast to the idols of this world, the idols are mute and foolish. They're utter nonsense. But Jesus is a God who answers the prayers of His people. Jesus is the God who walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus is the one who will lead us to the everlasting streams of living water in heaven. May we cast away our dearest idols of our heart and flee to Christ. And let us put all of our trust in Him as, as we pilgrim with Him all the way to glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, Lord, that You would be gracious to us, so gracious to us that You would write these eternal truths upon our hearts so that we might face the weary days ahead. Let us know that Christ is the chief shepherd of the sheep, and as we are united to Him in faith, He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the tent peg in which we can cast all of our weight onto, knowing, Lord, that He can bear it. That He can bear it. And so, Father, let us uh, be led by Him, His Word, His Spirit, all the way to heaven. But until that day, Lord, let us know that we are faithful pilgrims, and we are in a world that's just passing through. So let us not compromise the faith with the trappings of this world, 
But let us keep our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. In the name of Christ, we ask these things. Amen.